Welcome to Medicus, a podcast made by students about everything in the world of medicine. Welcome back to Medicus, everyone. Uh, this is Nate, and today I'm joined by my co-host, Olivia. Hi, everyone. And we are joined by a very special guest, Dr. Stacia Dearman. Would you mind introducing yourself? Sure. I am a physician who has practiced in the world of pediatrics, mostly in the realm of pediatric emergency medicine for a little bit over 20 years. And I am here with you today because I have a very special passion for the well-being of physicians and medical students who are confronted with unexpected adverse patient outcomes, and in particular with malpractice litigation. We've heard about you before. I've seen you on other podcasts, or I guess I should say listen to another podcast. Hmm. Would you mind telling us the story of your own experience with malpractice and what got you interested in this topic? Sure. Well, um, it's probably easy for your listeners to guess that a person wouldn't become passionate about this type of topic without some kind of personal experience. In my case, I had, um, I guess I would say a life-changing experience that began in the year 2012. At that point, I was practicing in the pediatric emergency department of a community hospital in the Cleveland Clinic Health System in Cleveland, Ohio, and uh, had a patient come in on a Friday. This was a relatively small pediatric emergency department, so I was the only attending in the department that day. And this young lady came in. I saw her over the course of several hours, did a thorough workup, and at the end of the day, discharged her home. Well, the next day, Saturday, I came back to work at 5 p.m. And very shortly after I arrived, a specialist came into the department to let me know that one of the patients I had seen on Friday was now in the ICU. And when I asked mm -hmm. him about who, it turned out it was this young lady. And what I learned yeah. from this ENT was that less than 24 hours after I discharged her home, she arrested at home. She stopped breathing. Wow. Her family called 911. An ambulance came to their home and the EMS personnel were unable to secure her airway. They took her to a nearby freestanding ER where very competent staff there also were unable to secure an airway. And so she was flown by helicopter from that freestanding ER to the intensive care unit at the hospital where I worked at the time. And the uh, specialist who came to see me was an ENT who had secured her airway. But as you can imagine, by that point, a significant period of time had elapsed. And as soon as he told me what happened, I knew immediately that this young woman's prognosis was not going to be good, um, that she had certainly suffered hypoxic brain injury, and uh, she was most likely not to survive at all, 
And if she did survive, she was likely to suffer lasting brain damage as a result of hypoxia. So I was stunned, I will tell you. I really look back on that day. And even now, as I'm telling you about it, almost nine years later, I can feel my heart racing because I really, um, I had sort of a kind of an out-of-body experience, like when I've learned that someone I love has died, I felt devastated. And uh, I suspected fairly immediately that I was likely to be sued in relation to that case. But more importantly, I myself struggled with a lot of questions about what I might have done differently, if anything, what responsibility, if any, I had in relation to her death, whether I was in the right career as a physician, whether I belonged in medicine at all, right? Whether I was a competent Mm -hmm. physician. And I will tell you that even after an autopsy a month later, even after my trial, three and a half years later, it's never become entirely clear to me why she arrested, why she died. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't change the fact that I was left with this feeling that I saw her, somehow I should have been able to foresee this or figure it out, right? So there was that huge impact of, you know, the fact that I'm in pediatrics because I love kids and young adults, and this terrible thing had happened to this young woman. Then lying ahead of me was the impact of malpractice litigation. It was about a year after she died that a lawsuit was filed against me, and it was about two and a half years beyond that that I actually went to trial, was at trial for three weeks. In the end, the jury ruled in my favor, in favor of the defense, but none of that diminished the stress and the strain that I felt throughout the whole process, the story of her adverse outcome and that impact on me, as well as the story of the malpractice litigation and its impact on me. It was actually in the middle of my trial that somewhat, I think by complete serendipity, I stumbled on a TEDx talk on the subject of physician suicide and found myself in the elevator with my lawyers the next morning on our way up to the courtroom saying to them, I don't know what all the reasons are why 400 American physicians are dying a year by suicide, but I promise you that what I'm going through is one of them. And it really was at that point before my trial was even over that I decided that I was going to take this really painful experience and try to pull something, something beautiful out of it. And uh, so at that point, really, I think I made the decision to put myself on the path to start creating a different kind of support for physicians than what was available to me when I went through it. Thank you so much for sharing that. I'm sure it brings up a lot of stressful emotions, maybe I should say, to just even kind of think about it. 
For anyone, I guess, who's not familiar with your work, you have this company where you help mentor physicians who have been put in a similar situation to yourself. Did you get the idea for this company, like, as you said, like right after the trial? And did you start working on it then? Or how did that come to be? Well, I would say the way it evolved was very stepwise and organically. It wasn't like mm-hmm. I had a fully formed notion immediately of where I needed to go next. I just knew that this was an experience that is inherent to life as a physician in the United States. Um, well, the adverse outcome aspect of things obviously is inherent to life as a physician around the world. Yeah. But our particular process of malpractice litigation is inherent to life as a physician in the United States. And my first thought was, this is a huge experience and we don't talk about it. Nobody talks yeah. about it, right? Um, and I felt like that is just not healthy. I mean, we know generally that there, if there is anything in our lives that is too shameful to talk about, that's not good for us, right? So my first thought was, how do we start to get people talking about it? So I started off with public speaking. And actually, the first public speaking event, if you want to call it that, that I did was a two-hour CME that I did together with my own defense lawyer, at the hospital where I was working at the time, which was not the hospital where I was when the patient's outcome occurred, but a place where I went later called Akron Children's Hospital. The impact of that talk on the people in that room was so profound. I really was stunned by the tears that were shed by folks who were in the room and just the impact that it had on them. So that further reinforced for me that this was something I needed to keep working on. So I continued to seek public speaking opportunities over the ensuing year or two. And then within a couple of years, I would say by 2017, it became apparent to me that I was not going to be able to reach all the people I wanted to reach when they needed it, simply by doing public speaking. So then I started blogging and started putting my words out into the world in written form, right? Spreading them on social media. And one of the pieces I wrote was syndicated by Doximity and shared posts with other bloggers, started to get things out there, started to be interviewed by some other podcasters way back then. Over time, physicians approached me for support and the time they most consistently came looking for support was as they were experiencing a lawsuit and were approaching their own deposition. So they Mm -hmm. told me that what they needed next was education around the early stages of a lawsuit and deposition. So then I created this uh, CME course. It's all online and available for people to stream 24-7. And they can obtain that, you know, through the website to educate themselves in a way that sets them up to better prepare for their deposition with the help of their lawyer. And then I would say the next piece that's still kind of in the making that I hope to bring physicians is retreats. So we had, I had a retreat Mm -hmm. scheduled with the leader of something (laughs) called the Institute for Physician Wellness last summer, but now it's going to hopefully happen this summer. And then last of all, I ended up uh, becoming a certified professional coach. So I do one-on-one coaching 
with physicians and sometimes nurses or other healthcare professionals around their experiences of adverse outcomes and healing there and around managing the stress of litigation. So it really blossomed into this sort of multi-pronged approach over time as people showed me what they needed. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I guess coming from my perspective, I would love having someone like yourself who has gone through this if I was having this trouble. I think physicians in general, we trust other physicians, whether that's about financial advice or if that's about even, you know, deposition advice, because having that lived experience is so valuable. Yeah, I think there's a common culture in medicine that exists across all subspecialties, right? We have Mm -hmm. certain life experiences in common that go all the way back to MCATs and gross anatomy labs and right on through residency training, et cetera. And uh, so I think there is a level of comfort with talking to someone who understands what you've been through. So was the talk that you watched conducted by Dr. Pamela Wibble? Yes, it was, Dr. Wibble. Yes, it was. Um, Yeah. Yes, it was. And the title of that first TEDx talk that she gave was not, it did not make it obvious that it was about physician suicide. The title was sort of humorous. And uh, I think if I had known it was going to be about physician suicide, I would not have watched it in the middle of my trial. <laughs> like at the end of the day, after the yeah. day in the courtroom, that would have not been my my topic of choice. Um, but I think life put it there for me to see it at that moment with good reason. And uh, actually, I had the pleasure of meeting her a couple of years later when we ended up both speaking at a, at a physician wellness summit in Pennsylvania. So, yes, well, she's a friend of the podcast. Oh, is she? Yeah, I have no doubt. I I did read her book and she wrote about how one of the main contributions to physician suicide was, you know, you're going through residency, you're you're attending, you went through medical medical school together. And there was this relationship like you talked about and this bond shared between everyone. But then you have something like a malpractice case happen and suddenly she felt like um, in the letter she was receiving that everyone turned against the person in question and that kind of pushed mm-hmm. them to a point where they just felt that they weren't able to cope. How was the support system for you when you were going through the trial from other physicians? Well, I think one of the harder things for physicians going through this is that we get the message that we shouldn't talk with anyone about the details of the case. And if you guys want, we can talk with a little greater clarity about exactly what that means, because what it turns out to mean to many physicians or how they interpret it is that they should not talk to anyone about any of it, and they end up mm-hmm. completely isolated. In my case, first of all, I am sort of a person who processes things verbally to begin with, right? processes things in conversation with other people. So truly talking to no one ever about what had happened would not have been possible for me, I don't think. Immediately after my patient's devastating outcome, I mean, in the couple of days between when she arrested and when she actually died, I reached out to my department chair. I was the assistant medical director of that department and I felt like my medical director needed to know what had happened. So I reached out to him. And then I also had a coworker, a colleague 
who was also a bit of a mentor, just a few years older than me and somebody who just practices impeccable medicine. So I reached out to her and what I wanted to ask both of them was, here's what I did, here's what I saw, here's what happened. Is there anything else you would have done? What am I missing here, right? Thankfully, both of them, first of all, they were supportive in the sense that they both understood how profoundly this has impacted me. And they had the wherewithal to say to me, I'm so sorry this has happened. They both said there's nothing else that they would have done. But I think even if they had had something else they would have done, they would have tried to present that sensitively. And particularly my mentor colleague friend reminded me, she said, you know you're an excellent doctor, right? And I'll be honest, you guys, at that moment, I did not know that, but it helped me a lot to hear her say it. The other people who actually really provided me amazing support in those first weeks after the event occurred were nurses I'd worked with for some years who knew me well and could see that I was hurting and a social worker who had worked in our department for some time. And really, I think those connections were as important as my connections with other physicians. People just to be saying, I know you are the kind of caring physician who would never want this to happen, right? Mm -hmm. Those sorts of words were very meaningful. Now, as the process went on and we moved from a week or two or three after this happened into months or a year or two years and the litigation was still sort of hanging over my head like a cloud that became more difficult i did not feel that people were behaving in a way that was detrimental to me but i suspect that most people don't realize how long physicians suffer with these things right? How long the support may be needed. So as things moved along, I would say there really weren't good places for me to turn for a whole lot of support. My lawyer, it was actually two, they were a team. They were great people, uh, but they are not physicians. So I think in doing public speaking with me, they've learned a lot about how this feels to physicians, but I don't think they entirely knew that at the time. It was very isolating. And I think that that depth of isolation is probably why when I heard Pamela Weibel's TED Talk, I thought, oh, what I'm going through is one of the reasons, right? Because it is so deep isolating. And when people really get into that state of despair and feel isolated and feel ashamed of what's happened, I think that obviously creates a risk to their mental health. And like you said, it's such a long-term stressor, you know, two years of having that, I hate to say hanging over your head, but it kind of is, right? It's just always in the back of your mind. Absolutely it is. Absolutely it is. Um, And I think it even goes beyond that because I came to a place where a jury rendered a verdict in my favor. But I really think, you know, it was three and a half years from the time of her death to the verdict came in. I think it was another three and a half years. It was like at the seven year mark after her passing that I felt like, ah, I've healed. 
right? Sure. So I think it really is a long process and there's no moment where it just presto, it's over. Mm -hmm. Is this one of the things that you counsel physicians about when you meet with them? Is, is it a lot of this like regaining confidence or is that something that you think is almost like an individual um, experience or maybe something that someone does with like a therapist? Well, I do think there is a lot of power in connection. So there, I think there is a lot of power in feeling like the experience you've had does not set you apart from the physician community. I think it's helpful to physicians to meet other people who've been through it. I think when people hear me as a public speaker, always there are people who come up to me afterwards and want to talk, right? It's a powerful experience for the listeners, especially if they've been through anything like what I've gone through. And I think the reason why that is, is because they perceive me as intelligent. They look at me and they think, oh, she seems like a reasonable physician. And then they think, and I'm like that, right? That's who sure. I am too. I'm a reasonable physician too. I'm not like a total dud here. I'm okay, <laughs> right? So I think that there's a lot of power in just connecting with someone else who understands you and who's been through it. Uh, in and of itself, that is healing and enables people to start to step back and say, this didn't happen to me because I'm a bad physician. It happened to me because the work I do is complicated, right? There are always these unknown variables. There are complex systems within which we're operating, right? Things are never perfectly predictable. So then people start, I think, to reframe their experience and to understand themselves and their part in it differently. And when that happens and you start to feel like I'm not isolated from the physician community, I'm one of the physician community, things shift considerably. Sure. And I think at some level, people's confidence starts to rebound simply sure. as a result of having that self-understanding. And then there may be other very specific elements that require specific approaches, if you will. So let's take an example if let's say a general emergency physician has an experience with a difficult airway and everything goes all to heck in the management of an airway and they find themselves experiencing almost ptsd like symptoms of fear when confronted with the need to manage an airway despite the fact that general emergency physicians are very well trained in airway management, right? But they're having fear in the face of managing an airway. Well, then they may need other approaches. They may need to uh, work with a colleague to rebuild their confidence around airways or spend a little time in the sim lab, or they may want to work with a therapist skilled in trauma management, right? And, and, utilize a technique called EMDR for treating PTSD. There are any number of paths they can go down. But I think there are there's sort of um, unique paths for each person according to their situation. Does that make sense? 
So I work with people on those things. And part of that work is sometimes knowing when to refer them out for some other modality, right? Or help them find their resources. Yeah. Well, I mean, I thank you so much for, for sharing your story. If you don't mind, I think maybe we kind of want to transition a little bit into some general topics, yeah. especially for our, you know, medical students, maybe pre-med, maybe a little more trainee focused audience. Yeah. Uh, the concept of malpractice itself might be a little bit nebulous. Mm. Um, would you mind maybe trying to explain to someone who was unfamiliar what exactly malpractice is, like what is required to convict someone of malpractice in the first place? Right. Well, the first thing I would say is that um, medical malpractice litigation is a kind of civil litigation. So the, in the United States, there is civil litigation and there is criminal litigation, right? Mm -hmm. So this is civil litigation. And basically it is a, a situation where the plaintiff, be that the patient with the adverse outcome or their family or their estate, is alleging a breach of contract. So it's almost like if you sued a small business, except that we feel it much more deeply than that, right? So they're alleging you promised to do something and you did not do it. And I deserve monetary compensation for your failure to do what you promised to do. Okay. So I mention all that because even the word like convict, no one actually gets convicted of malpractice. If it goes as far as trial, the jury finds in favor of the defense or in favor of the plaintiff. All right. So what the plaintiffs have to prove in order to sustain this allegation of malpractice is four things. So the first thing that they have to prove is that you had a duty to care for the patient. And in some instances, that seems really simple. Like you come into the emergency room, the emergency doctor sees you, they had a duty to take care of you. In other instances, it's less clear cut, like one partner in a group practice orders a lab result, the lab result comes back to the office while that partner's on vacation. Did the partner on call have a duty to contact the patient about that lab result? Let's say that would be mm -hmm. the first thing that they've got to prove that you had a duty to care for the patient. The second thing they have to prove is that you deviated from the standard of care. And what the law defines as a standard of care is what a similar physician similar training, similar specialty would do under similar circumstances, all right? So there's, it's not perfect practice. It's not what Harrison's Principles of Internal Medicine mm -hmm. says you should have done. It's what another similar physician would do under the same or similar circumstances. So the first thing they want to prove is that you had a responsibility to care for the patient. And the second thing they want to do is to prove that whatever it is you did or didn't do is different from what a similar physician would do under similar circumstances. 
The third thing they have to prove is that your failure to do what someone else would do under similar circumstances is the direct cause or the loss as the proximate cause of the patient's injury. So even if you could prove that I did something that another physician under similar circumstances would not have done, if what I did didn't cause the injury, then it's immaterial. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Sure. If you accidentally gave the wrong dose of like a blood pressure medication and their blood pressure is a little bit low, but there was no harm to the patient, then it wouldn't necessarily be malpractice. Is that Exactly. Correct? Exactly. Sure. Exactly. And then last of all, what they have to show is that there are damages owing to the patient in terms of money, right? Monetary damages owing to the patient in order to compensate them in some way for the injury. Okay. Okay. Or to their family. I mean, there are certainly wrongful death longs, uh, lawsuits. That was my case, right? So uh, the young woman who was my patient couldn't benefit from money, but her parents alleged that they could, right? Sure. So those are the things that idea of duty, deviation from the standard of care, that that directly caused the injury, and that there are damages. All of those things have to be true to prove medical malpractice, so to speak. Now, I think it's probably useful for your listeners to know what I would like young physicians to know is, first of all, even if people aren't telling you this, and they don't you know, share their life stories with you. Most American physicians will be sued at some point in their career. All right, they'll be named in a lawsuit at some point. So for all of you graduating, let's say this year in your medical school class, Nate, mm -hmm. by the time you guys get to be 60 or 65, almost all of you will be able to raise your hand and say, yes, I have been sued. Now, I don't say that to scare you guys. I say it so that when it happens to you, even if it's when you're a resident or five years out or 10 years out, you know, I am not alone. It's not that I was the bad apple in my medical school class. This is going to happen at some point to pretty much all of us. Okay. So that's mm -hmm. the first thing I'd like you to know. The second thing I'd like you to know is that most malpractice cases do not ever go to trial. Nine out of 10 cases are resolved without ever getting to trial, either because they're dropped or because they're settled in some way. All right. And most physicians who are sued and go all the way to trial return to practice and continue to, to live out their careers doing good in the world. So I think sometimes people fear that they're the only one they know this has happened to, let's say. Yeah, because like you said, people don't talk about it, so they don't know anyone else who's admitted to it, I guess. Right. There's very good data that suggests that probably something like one out of 10 or one out of 12 physicians in the United States are in the middle of a lawsuit at any given time. So wow. like if you imagine, you know, some big grand rounds auditorium full of people in the pre-COVID days and you asked, 
if people felt that they could honestly stand up if they were in the middle of a lawsuit and people stood up scattered all throughout the auditorium people don't really think about it that way but mm-hmm. but it's true that that is the the communal experience i think that's very important to understand it's devastating for the person going through it but maybe it's a little helpful to at least know that you're not the only one right mhm mhm in the interest of making the trial experience and the deposition experience for malpractice a little more clear, mm-hmm. would it be okay if we kind of went through the steps of getting sued for malpractice? Like kind of a theoretical timeline, who is present at what time, and you know, what is the physician's role in each step, if that makes sense? Sure, uh, sure. Let's okay, let's just maybe start from the beginning. Like if you're in a situation where you think you might be facing a lawsuit, mm-hmm. what happens first? Like what's the first thing that you encounter, I guess? So, if I'm hearing you correctly, you're asking, let's say something bad has happened to a patient and you're wondering sure. whether you might be sued. Is that Sure. Yeah. The starting place? Okay. So, I would say the first thing to do if i can just render a little bit of advice is really basic stuff many physicians when they're in that situation where they fear they might be sued they feel well an overwhelming sense of fear and anxiety at that prospect and i would just like to put out there that fear can drive people to do strange things that you okay. would not do on any other day right? So the first thing you've got to do is keep your wits about you. You don't want to tamper with the medical record after a bad outcome has occurred, because invariably, one way or another, that will come out, and it will just dig you into a much deeper hole than you had to be in to begin with. So you want to keep your record really honest. If you're in a hospital environment, you want to communicate promptly with the risk manager at the hospital, their job is to begin to sort of manage these situations right from the get-go, to gather all the data they can and to figure out what the best way is to navigate it. The other person that you need to talk with is whoever you report to directly. So if you're still in training, obviously you need to talk with the attending physician who's providing care for that patient. But I would also say, like as a resident, that it would be wisdom to talk maybe with your chief, with your program director, right? Let those folks in on what's going on and see what guidance, if any, they want to give you. Um, But you want to be very choiceful about who you talk with and talk with these people who you trust will keep things in confidence and will give you good guidance. Um, now I will say I have on occasion met residents going through litigation where my impression is that their program director has not yet experienced litigation and did not really know how to be supportive to them. So if that happens to be your situation, I would say there are people out there who do know how to be supportive and you need to keep looking for that person, right? Even if you reach out to me, you've got to find somebody who can give you support. 
So those are the very earliest steps that you're going to protect the medical record and you're going to reach out to those higher ups or to a risk manager. Or if someone's in private practice, the other person to go to is uh, your medical malpractice insurance carrier. Right, they're going to have a okay. claims manager who you can get on the phone with, tell them of your concern, and like a risk manager, they'll start to gather information and just set it all to the side. And the reason why that's really important to do early is because there is what's called the statute of limitations. So people who may have cause to file a lawsuit, depending upon what the circumstances and which of the 50 states they're in, they have some sort of a time period, which may be one year, maybe two years, or in pediatric cases may even be until that patient turns 21 to file their lawsuit. There are a lot of things that will get forgotten in that interim. Right. So you want to kind of gather data early and then hopefully let it rest and just see what happens. Okay. If the patient or the family does, in fact, decide to file a lawsuit and they find a personal injury attorney who agrees to take the case on, then you'll receive notification that a lawsuit has been filed against you. Once again, I would say you've got to immediately communicate either with your malpractice insurance carrier or with your risk manager. You absolutely need for them to know that that's happening, right? And you need to make sure, once again, that that medical record is protected. So like if you were in a private practice environment, that medical record would just need to be locked down. Um, it's usually at that point that whoever is providing your malpractice coverage will assign a lawyer or designate a lawyer to serve you, okay. a defense lawyer. So physicians generally, for the most part, do not go out into the community looking for a defense lawyer and interviewing three or four and picking one. Usually what happens is that the hospital they work for or the malpractice carrier that provides their insurance tells them, we have asked so-and-so to handle your mm. case. And I would say in most instances, those are good choice, good choices because those malpractice carriers have a whole, they call it a stable <laughs> of defense lawyers that they work with and they know them well. If you ever, you know, found that you didn't like the lawyer you were working with for some reason, you could ask to be assigned another one. Absolutely. Or if someone else had given you the name of someone they particularly liked, you could ask to work with that person. But generally it's not, the onus is not on you to find somebody. Okay. And then at that point, the lawsuit enters into a phase called discovery. And at that point is where deposition comes in. Deposition is one of the tools of discovery. People will be deposed on both sides. Deposition is basically sort of a fancy conversation in which as, as a physician defendant, you go in with your defense lawyer and you find the plaintiff's lawyer is present, a court reporter is present to create a transcript. There may or may not be a videographer present um, and there may or may not be other parties present. Uh, 
it's not uncommon in malpractice cases for there to be more than one defendant in the case at the same time. And if those other defendants have lawyers who are different from your own, those lawyers are going to want to be there to hear what you have to say. In the context of the deposition, the plaintiff's lawyer is going to ask you all kinds of questions, and you're obligated to answer those questions to the best of your ability under oath, and that transcript becomes part of the legal record. So it sounds like it would be a pretty simple undertaking, but there are actually important rules of engagement around deposition and um, pitfalls to be avoided. Um, it can be it can be a fairly stressful event for physicians and is actually a very important event. There are there are lots of defense lawyers who like to say that many cases are won or lost at deposition. After that, about 90% and even some before deposition, but somewhere around 90% of the cases are resolved somewhere in that discovery period either because they're dropped or because they're settled, right? Mm -hmm. and, and a settlement is reached. And then a small, like eight or 10% go on to trial. Can I just maybe interject with a question really quick? Please, yeah. So uh, in those cases where the lawsuit is dropped or it is settled, mm -hmm. what is typically the reason for that? Is it that the defendant changes their mind or is it that the, the attorney for the defendant changes their mind or what exactly is usually going on? I guess you can't always speak for every single case, but in your experience. Well, there could be a lot of different reasons why a case might be dropped. So certainly one that is very common is that some personal injury attorneys will choose to name to sue every physician whose name is on the chart. So you've seen the inner workings of hospitals, right? You can imagine you could have a patient in an intensive care unit with eight or 10 physicians involved and somebody saw them in the emergency department two weeks ago and then there's their primary care doctor and right. Um, and then there are the residents who are involved or whatever. So they may choose to sue all those individuals. And as the case begins to unfold, it becomes apparent that some of those people who were named really either did not have a duty to care for the patient or any actions they did or did not engage in had no relationship whatsoever to the adverse outcome. So those particular individuals, those defendants, may be dropped from the case. Another reason why a case may be dropped is that as the case enters discovery, both the plaintiff's attorney, right, who's accusing the physician, and the defense attorney are going to go out into the world and start to seek opinions from physicians who function as expert witnesses in relation to malpractice cases. If the personal injury attorney cannot get a good, strong expert opinion that the physician they've named in the suit committed malpractice, then they may choose to drop it, right? Mm -hmm. 
or maybe the other factors come to light in the course of discovery, like um, documentation of test results or communications that previously the plaintiffs hadn't revealed to the attorney, that kind of thing. So there can be a lot of reasons why people are dropped. It's very common if, uh, just to maybe put some of your listeners' minds at ease, it's very common that residents or fellows who are named in a lawsuit are dropped along the way. And that really their attending physician remains a defendant, but the trainee does not. That's not always the case, but it's common. Okay, so that makes sense. So most of the settlements that happen, is there some sort of meeting that gets called? Like who suggests the settlement? Is it the uh, the plaintiff who suggests it or is it the defense who suggests it? Or... I think that also is variable. Trial generally is a very costly process in monetary terms, as well as it's time intensive and it's exhausting for everyone involved, including the lawyers. It Mm -hmm. uses a lot of courtroom resources, as you can imagine, to find a jury, a group of smart members of the lay public who could say, yes, I can be in this courtroom for three weeks. That in and of itself is challenging. So the court would prefer that things which can be settled outside of court are. Not everything can be settled outside of court, but the court would prefer that uh, parties make a good faith effort to do that. Now, in some cases, a hospital or a malpractice carrier or a physician may see that, yes, something bad happened here, and it is appropriate that this patient receive some type of monetary compensation. So when that's the case, the hospital, for example, may step forward and say, we would like to negotiate a settlement, right? Okay. It would not be the individual physician negotiating that settlement. It would be lawyers, risk managers, other people negotiating on their behalf, just like there are lawyers negotiating on behalf of the patient or their family. In other instances, it may be that the lawyer for the plaintiff sees my client is more likely to receive some monetary compensation if we settle for a lower amount than if we try to go to trial for a higher amount. They're, they're more assured of some compensation. So they may want to try to reach a settlement from their end. So I think it's probably as individual as each case is individual. And there are a variety of reasons why settlements can occur. Well, you mentioned about the insurance company and the hospital choosing to settle is new information to me. I guess that makes sense to me, like intellectually, but for some reason I was always under the impression that the physician had total control over their own case and that if they didn't want to settle, that they wouldn't have to. Is that accurate? You kind of implied otherwise. That can vary quite a bit. Um, I think sometimes it depends on a physician's contract, their contract of employment. It also depends uh, in many cases on 
clauses in the malpractice insurance policy, right? Hmm. So okay. there are policies where as a physician, your consent is required in order for them to settle. Okay. Right? Okay. But still, the physician may feel like, yeah, this amount that we're going to settle for is a small amount, and I am ready for this to come to a close. Right? I'm sure they do often. Yeah. But... Or I made XYZ error. I would like to see this settled and have my conscience clean again. Right? Sure. There are plenty of reasons why parties on either side might want to settle. So after there's a settlement, what resources does the hospital offer to the physician? Is there a transition period so that they can get back to work? Are they expected to come back to work right away with full force? What is a timeline after a settlement occurs? Oh, I'm so glad that you asked that because actually physicians who are sued keep working. That's part of the stress for many and they wouldn't have a paycheck if they didn't. So I never stopped working throughout the two and a half years that my lawsuit was pending, and it would be very rare that a physician would. Now, I took the day off the day of my deposition, and I made sure I wasn't up late the night before, and I lobbied to have time completely off for my trial. Some physicians even try to work like in evenings or on weekends while they're on trial, and I think that is a real mistake. Trial is a full-time job. It's very stressful. Uh, I have a good friend who had an MI when her jury went out to deliberate. So I think people should not be trying to work through trial. And I think hospitals and medical groups should offer physicians all the support around that time that they can. Because these are occupational events. These are work-related events, right? The hospital CEO mm -hmm. is not being sued for malpractice because the hospital CEO generally does not practice medicine. But actually, people work right through these things. And they may, in fact, receive notice that they're being sued while they're at work. Their papers may be served to them in their office or in their workplace. Can we just back up a little bit about serving the papers? Is that mm -hmm. typically done through like a messenger or certified mail or? It depends on your community, but I think it's almost always a representative of the court. If I remember correctly, my papers went through the risk management office of the institution before they came into my hands. But I know people uh, like in a rural community, I think it maybe was like a sheriff who showed up at their office <laughs> with the papers, <laughs> you know, in the yeah. middle of their day, in the middle of their day in their, you know, OB practice or whatever. I can imagine that would be almost part of the trauma in and of itself. Very stressful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, while we're on the topic of the medical system and the role the medical system has in the malpractice suit, it might be worth talking a little bit about the role they have in preventing medical errors in the first place. Um, kind of a systems-based thinking, you know, the Swiss cheese that is the classic thing that we always talk about. I swear I get yeah. a Swiss cheese lecture like at least twice a year. I'm not sure <laughs> who decides when it's time, but what types of 
practices should a large medical system put in place to help physicians with malpractice and medical errors? Well, I think we're kind of maybe asking two questions rolled into one. The first one being, what is our role in preventing errors and thereby minimizing the risk of malpractice lawsuits, right? Sure. Now, obviously, health systems and physicians have or should have a robust interest in making our systems as safe as they can be, right? Just like the Federal Aviation Administration should have a robust interest in making flying in the United States as safe as it can be. I think it's important to recognize that not all malpractice lawsuits arise because there was an error. Sure. Yeah. You follow me? Mm -hmm. There are Mm -hmm. lots of malpractice lawsuits which arise because there was a bad outcome. But a bad outcome doesn't necessarily imply a flawed system or a medical error. Sure. Bad outcomes are part of the practice of medicine. Mm-hmm. So, so the second piece, second question in my mind is, what should the role of the health system be in responding to physicians, nurses, other clinicians, when they're confronted with the bad outcomes or the medical errors or the malpractice litigation? And I think their responsibility to respond there is actually pretty substantial but I think not very many health systems across the country have yet found a really successful, consistent way to support all types of clinicians through these experiences. There's been a lot of work in this area. People are trying. I don't mean to imply that they're not making the effort, but I think we still have a long way to go to really provide people with the kind of emotional support that they need in the face of hard outcomes or malpractice litigation. This sounds like this is a great first step, which is having these conversations. And I don't want to say normalizing, but I didn't realize how common it was for physicians to be faced with malpractice and that, you know, just knowing that a lot of the physicians that I shadowed and never brought it up were probably, you know, going through a trial or were in the middle of one, like you said. And so I think that I already feel a lot more calm, but, you know, I'm only in my first year, so I guess we'll see what happens. (laughs) Yes. No, I completely agree with you. I think there is a lot of power in even just being able to talk about something, right? Makes me think of Harry Potter. Like if we're going to call it (laughs) that which shall not be named, (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. we have no real opportunity to, to face up to it and kind of conquer the beast, right? We need to be able to name things and it empowers us to get through it, I think. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think something that's worth pointing out too is So many lectures or topics when it comes to medicine are taught by our colleagues who know about it. And I think there's a lot of physicians who just don't Mm -hmm. know much about malpractice. So it's really hard to find a speaker 
to come and talk about malpractice and maybe bring it up, not necessarily even at grand rounds, but maybe just like in lectures to residents and things, because it's hard to find someone who can actually mm-hmm. talk about it in a meaningful way. I mean, such as yourself, you are definitely unique in that way. And I think it's nice that we can kind of initiate this process of learning and talking about it. My own experience with malpractice lectures so far have been a lawyer from the risk management department of the hospital coming in for 30 minutes to the medical school and sharing like a slide deck without any kind of personal experience with malpractice. It's kind of dry. Everyone is on their computers, (laughs) like doing their homework during the lecture. It's not really that helpful. And it would be so much better to have someone like yourself come in and Mm -hmm. actually talk about malpractice in a meaningful way. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. I don't know that I would be doing what I'm doing if I hadn't heard that TED Talk, if I hadn't been thinking about physician suicide, because that notion that other physicians are out there suffering deeply with nowhere to turn for support, that drives me. That really drives me. I feel like, okay, I suffered. Well, that's one thing. We as physicians, we tend to be pretty stoic, tough cookies. So I think, okay, I suffered. But when I think, oh, but this other person over here, this wonderful person I knew in medical school, they're suffering, they're thinking about suicide, well, that's not okay, right? It drives me in a different way, I think. And so I think Mm -hmm. what happens is that a lot of people go through an experience like the adverse outcome or like malpractice litigation, and they want nothing more than to put it behind them. So because they want to put it behind them, it's hard for them to even consider getting up and speaking about it in front of a group. Like that just feels crazy, right? Who would want to revisit the whole thing? But I think Mm -hmm. there is a beauty in learning from each other about it. There's power for us in recognizing that we have these experiences, not because we're bad physicians, but because we're brave enough to get in there as flawed human beings and try to take care of other human beings. We'll never fully understand the human body. Our healthcare systems will never be absolutely perfect, right? We're always pushing the edge forward and pushing the edge forward. So there's always gonna be something we don't know. And still we're brave enough to get in there and try. If people take no other message away, that's what I'd like for them to know. This happened to you, not because you're weak, but because you're so strong that you're in there doing what you're doing. I think that's maybe a great place to end. Thanks so much for coming on and talking to us. We really appreciate it. Uh, I know that sharing your own experience can feel kind of vulnerable sometimes as well. And I really appreciate you being vulnerable in that therapeutic sense. It's been my pleasure. Thank you guys so much for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode. Subscribe to the podcast or follow us on social media to get notifications about new episodes. The views and opinions expressed by guests and hosts on this podcast are their own and do not represent the various community and professional organizations to which the speaker might belong. Thanks for listening and we'll be back with another episode next week.